Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Kona Shane Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, today I am hanging out with boarded veterinary behaviorist, Dr. Terry Curtis. I reached out to Dr. Curtis because I was hearing a lot of chatter during the pandemic about behavior problems associated with the pandemic. And she and I talk about that right off the bat. The big one that I was hearing about was separation anxiety as people start to go back to work. Um, she's got some strong feelings about that and the truth of uh, of that. And I, I, I thought it was fascinating. So we talk a little bit about that. We talk a lot about uh, inter-dog aggression, which is something that she is seeing in her practice increasing during the pandemic. It's a great one for us to review on. It's complicated. It is. It can be heartbreaking if it doesn't go well. A lot of pressure on, on doctors to try to figure this out. Um, man, this is this is such a good episode. It made me, this is one of those ones that I am immediately going to be putting into practice in conversations in the vet clinic. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help Welcome Dr. Terry Curtis. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Andy. How you doing? I'm doing really well. I, it's good to see you. Uh, and I love, I, I love that you agree to be on the show. I always love talking behavior stuff with you. Uh, you uh, were my professor and you're a darn good one. And uh, when I got a chance to reach out and work with you, I was thrilled. So um, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit. So you are, you are, uh, you are a, board, a boarded veterinary behaviorist um, you uh, work out of North Florida, South Georgia. Uh, you do a lot of house call work. You, you, uh, I know you were a feline general practitioner before you did your residency. Uh, you still do, are you still feline heavy or I know you do a lot with dogs as well? Um, I pretty much the caseload is, is dogs primarily. I do see cats, but dogs are still probably the ones with the most behavior problems. So they're the ones that I see the most. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but it, it is, and you said North Florida, I, I go everywhere. So there's only three behaviorists in Florida. And um, so one is in South Florida, one is supposedly in Tampa, but I travel wherever people want me to go. Sounds good. Okay, well, cool. Well, I, uh, I reached out to you a while ago, because the rumor that I was hearing was that during the pandemic, there were uh, a number of behavior problems that were really coming to light, whether that was because people were spending more time with their pets or because, uh, and just seeing these things or because them being at home, working from home, things like that were exacerbating some problems, things like that. So when I, when I reached out to you originally, I said, you know, I've heard that people are starting to go back to work and the reports of separation anxiety is going up and you didn't, you didn't seem to buy into that. What are you, What's your take when I say that? Well, a couple of things. I, I think um, I think everybody was was kind of concerned that because people were home, that there was going to be this uh, attachment that you wouldn't normally see uh, with dogs coming into a household because people were there all the time. And I just it, it didn't make sense that there wasn't going to be the data to back that up because I think there's a certain when it, when they've looked at causes for separation anxiety trying to look at attachment um, models. Um, There's secure attachment models in children and they, and they kind of look at that, you know, so does a Velcro parent uh, and a dog foster the idea or the, or the, uh, um, the presence of separation anxiety? And, and none of the studies have ever borne that out. 
Okay, that if you take your dog everywhere, that they're more likely to have separation anxiety than if you don't leave them or take them everywhere. So the only the only thing I I believe is true that that they've been able to find a causation um, or at least a correlation is that dogs that come from a rescue um, might be more prone to having separation anxiety. But then it it becomes kind of a chicken or the egg thing. Are are they in rescue because they had separation anxiety and are destroying everything? Or are they are they having separation anxiety because they've been in a shelter or a number of shelters? And we really don't know because we just don't have the information. So I was kind of hesitant to just kind of jump to this conclusion mm-hmm. that the dogs were going to be, you know, inundated or people were going to be inundated with separation anxiety dogs. And I also had a problem with the idea of just putting that into people's heads. Mm-hmm. That, you know, uh oh, you know, there's going to be this big mess when I start to go to work on top of everything else that's gone on this year that's, you know, that's been stressful. Now I have to worry about going to work and my dog's going to become unglued. And and so I just, I was a little, I didn't like the idea of, of kind of planting that seed, uh, especially without without tools for the people to handle, you know, right. that. And I, and I think there are things that people can do to just kind of set everybody up for success, whether it's because they're going to work after a pandemic or they're just getting a dog, period. You know, what, what can yeah. you do to make your departures more positive, all of that. And, and so in my case, I just wasn't, I wasn't seeing this rise of separation anxiety. Like it, it just wasn't my caseload. Now, whether primary veterinarians, the, the frontline veterinarians are the ones that are seeing it and they're the ones that are taking care of it. I don't know, but my caseload wasn't showing an increase in separation anxiety. Where where were you seeing increases? So the the two things um, were inner dog aggression and inner cat aggression, and inner dog aggression more so than inner cat aggression. And I think what was happening there was, first of all, with this kind of a stress uh, level this past year or, or year and a half, whatever it is now. Um, you, you can't, you can't extricate, you can't tease apart the general anxiety or stress level in a household and, and how that affects any pets in the house. So I think if, if people are stressed, um, their, their dogs and cats are going to get stressed too, especially if there's not a lot of room, um, and, or if schedules have really been changed. So it's kind of like, you know, you may love your spouse for like, six hours of, of waking day, okay? But, you know, 18 hours of waking day or 12 hours of waking day, not so much, you know? Mm. Like, go out and do something, okay? <laughs> so I think what was happening is that dogs were kind of put in the same position, cats too, to maybe a lesser extent, but dogs could, could tolerate being around their owner pre-COVID um, coming together when the owner came home. So let's say you're from home, home from work. So let's say six to nine. So let's say three hours, the dogs are together and that's an okay time frame. They could, they could handle being together, but now dogs that wouldn't normally be together during the day, you know, dog A is off in the living room, dog B is in the bedroom. They really come together only when the owner's home. They don't really have a relationship, um, without the owner being there. So now the owner's there all the time. And so the dogs are together all the time and it's just too much. So they're eating together, they're around taking naps together. 
They want to be where the owner is. So they're probably awake more. They're not getting the sleep that they would normally get when the owner's away. And so that adds to the tension and tension is never good for relationships of any kind. And so dogs start to fight. And so that's what I was seeing a lot of. Um, again, cats to a lesser degree, but for the, for the same reasons, just because they're around when they normally wouldn't be together because the owner's there. Okay. Let's, let's stick with dogs a little bit. If I see this in the exam room and I have the person who's working from home now when they say, oh, you know, they used to always get along. And now that I'm, you know, I'm working from home, I'm not going to go back or I've got a new job and, and, and I, I'm going to be doing a lot more homework. Um, how do I get these guys to get along? Help me put together a treatment plan, sort of a program that you would walk this person through upon its first presentation. I think inner dog aggression is one of the more complicated uh, issues to address. Um, when I first uh, finished my residency, uh, it seemed like dogs that weren't getting along were having issues of hierarchy. And, and I don't know if that's just what we were looking for or if that truly was the caseload, where it was one dog trying to be dominant over the other dog or the owner kind of mucking up the relationship hierarchy. Um, now, uh, when I have two dogs fighting, when I'm talking to an owner, I say the words, think couples counseling, because I think it's, it's the, it, it can be that complicated where um, by the time I see them or the, or the primary veterinarian sees the case, the relationship is broken. There's already been a fight. So you are kind of tasked with trying to figure out what the relationship is or was um, trying to figure out which individual or if not both individuals have individual issues. Again, just kind of like a couples counselor would. Mm -hmm. So you have one, one person, one dog, let's say, who's been the victim and, and beat up in a couple of fights. They're, they're going to come to the table now in an entirely different manner. So maybe more aggressive, more aggressive than they normally would be maybe walking on eggshells, so more anxious and tentative. So you, you really got to take the individuals apart, take them out of the relationship, uh, literally or figuratively. I've had some people put one dog, you know, with a friend and, and because they can't, you don't want them to, to keep being with each other and having fights. That's not going to do any good. Right. And so either physically separate them in the house and start this individual therapy, if you will, to get both of them to just kind of be more relaxed, um, not so, you know, hair triggered in their responses, and then work on bringing them together. And, and in the process of that, the veterinarian really has to find out what the relationship is. And, and I think what has surprised me is that there's a number of dogs out there that really don't have a relationship. They really are more like cats. They don't, um, they don't look at each other. They don't, um, they don't lick the lips of each other. They don't play bow to each other. Um, they don't pee over each other's pee. They, they really just kind of coexist. Uh, and, and so, again, by having two individuals who don't really have a relationship that are now forced to or, or choose to be together because their primary resource is there, their owner is there, you've got two individuals that, either may tolerate each other or really don't like each other at all, but mm -hmm. in the past could just kind of get away. But now they're kind of forced to be together and you're, and you're forcing almost an agonistic relationship 
where there wasn't a relationship at all. Jamie, tell me about your your favorite cat. Um, you're not supposed to have favorites, but I do. Her name is Calico Jack, and she's missing her upper uh, and her lower canines. Um, and she's just a delight. Ah, Calico Jack and the rest of your crew all drink from the Filacqua uh, water system, correct? They do. I like to... Tell me about it. I, I love it. It's a smart system, so every time the cats come up, it registers their microchip, and it tells me how much they've had to drink in a given period of time, so I can make sure that none of them are drinking too much or drinking too little. Yeah, the uh, Falaqua is from Sure Pet Care as part of their connected ecosystem. Guys, uh, this has been something that uh, Jamie and I have gotten to play with for the last couple of months, and it is super cool. Uh, we know that water intake is a huge flag for uh, for disease and uh, illness in our feline patients, and we want to stay on top of it, and we want pet owners to know uh, what their cat is drinking. This is a great approach to it. If you want to learn more, head over to surepetcare.com slash water. That's surepetcare.com slash water. I'll put the link in the show notes. Hey guys, I just want to jump in real quick with a couple quick announcements. Over on the Uncharted Veterinary Podcast, me and Stephanie Goss are talking about uh, when the practice manager is related to one of the employees. We got a note from the mailbag where we had a, uh, a doctor who's buying the practice. And this doctor is concerned because the practice manager is related to a problem employee and uh, the new doctor coming in is like what do i do about that because this could really blow up in my face stephanie goss and i break it down if that sounds like something of interest to you head on over pick up the uncharted veterinary podcast wherever you get podcasts like wherever you got this one that you're listening to right now it'll be there you can find it there too i promise and uh i'd love to have you check it out that is a great podcast that i enjoy doing very much also over at Uncharted, we have our next workshop. It is scheduled and coming up on September 22nd. It is called Team Power, adding value to your visits. The amazing Dr. Marianne Vandalindi is going to be leading this workshop. It's a two hour workshop where she talks about getting more clients from no to yes. She talks about uh, using your practice values to get buy-in from the team, get the team on the same page and getting that buy-in and getting them on the same page. Man, that means more cohesion and more client compliance. If you're like, man, I'd love to talk about that. Uh, we would love to have you there. September 22nd, I'll put the link down in the show notes. It is free to Uncharted members, $99 to the public. And the last thing that I wanna remind you of is registration is open for the Uncharted Culture Conference. That is October 21st through the 23rd. It is virtual. It is a leadership conference. So this is for people who want to improve the culture in their conference. It is meant for multiple attendees from a practice to come. You can certainly come by yourself. But we really try to encourage uh, people to say, hey, I'm going to go and I'm going to take the practice manager and uh, the medical director and maybe the office manager or the head technician. And the three or four of us are going to go and we're all going to get here and get immersed in culture and building a wonderful place to work and preventing people from burning out and keeping employees happy and just generally making our practice a great place to be. Uh, we do have a buy to get one free special going on. And the reason for that is because really I do, I want 
I want a bunch of people from your practice. I want your leadership team to come so that you guys can take this back and talk about it and all have this shared experience. It's also virtual, so you don't have to travel. You don't have to pay for hotel rooms for people. You guys can all just, you know, from where you are, you can all participate and have this shared experience that I think is going to really help your practice. Anyway, that's enough about that. I'll put a link down in the show notes. Uh, head on over there and get registered. We'd love to see you October 21st through the 23rd virtually. Guys, that's enough. Let's get back into what we're talking about. So this may be a really simplistic question, but is it true that some dogs are just not going to get along? I mean, I, that sounds so lame when I ask it that way, but I, I think it's it's uh, I think it's something important to talk about with owners. I think it's very important to talk about owners about it with owners. And and the again, the words that I use are we we somehow get that not all cats are going to like all other cats. And, mm-hmm. and we're very tentative about bringing another cat into the house, or, or at least we're aware of the fact that cat A may not like cat B. And, you know, we may need a backup plan. With dogs, there's this idea that all dogs like each other and everything's going to go well. And in my world, that's just not the case. There are absolutely some dogs, whether it's their household dogs or just I don't like that dog in the dog park. Mm-hmm. I don't like that dog on a walk. And I'm like, hey, I don't like everybody either. <laughs> and so, I, I, you know, this anthropomorphism that we're so hesitant to employ, in some cases, I don't think we do enough of it. I, I think yeah. that there are, there are dogs that just, I don't like you. And I don't care what you do. I don't care what medications I'm on. I just do not like you. And, and, I've, and I've had cases like that where I can say, I pretty much came up with a Cadillac treatment plan and it didn't work, and and two dogs just could not see each other at all without trying to to kill each other. Yeah. And typically, it's worse with two females. Um, one of the worst cases I saw was a mother-daughter, uh, um, and they wow. were Jack Russell Terriers, and they were they were not they were not going to ever be in each other's presence without trying to kill each other. So typically, two females are the worst. Then two males, especially if there's any intact uh, males. And then male, female. But it's just, you know, I, I think we need to be a little more cognizant of the fact that we're bringing in an entirely different species that has feelings and thoughts about the world and what's going on and who they're interacting with instead of, hey, let's just go to the shelter and get a dog or a cat. Yeah. Um, so I have a lot of a lot of questions coming out of that. Let, let me ask first on, are, are there questions that you like to use to help you get an idea of what's going on at home? So so when you're talking to the owner, yeah, are there are there some good questions that you have or phrases that you use to try to get try to get some insight into this relationship? Sure. Okay. So dogs dogs talk to each other if if you know whether they have a relationship or not. And so you get information from how they talk to each other. So you know, uh, who looks at who and who looks away. So typically the dog that looks away is the more subordinate dog, the more submissive dog. And then uh, let, let me bring in here that, that dominance, because it's a really important concept. Dominance is a function of two members of the same species only. So two dogs, two cats, two birds, two people. There's no dog trying to be dominant to people. So that whole idea needs to be squelched right away. But dominance mm-hmm. does exist between two dogs. And it's typically expressed from the point of view of the subordinate one. The subordinate one usually does most of the talking. So they're the ones that are going to be looking away. They're the ones that are going to avoid an approach. 
Um, they're the ones that are going to turn around and maybe leave a room if the other dog is in the room. Um, the, the more subordinate dog uh, often licks the lips of the other dog. The uh, more subordinate and certainly the more younger or the younger dog uh, is the one who play bows to the other dog. Uh, mounting can be a, an expression of dominance. So the dominant dog is going to mount the more submissive dog, but you can see a submissive dog mount a more dominant dog, especially during play uh, and or after a play bow. So the vast majority of dogs that are living with people and are getting along, owners aren't seeing this because it's a give and take relationship and there are no issues. And so if, if no one's growling, if no one's biting anyone, no one's paying attention. You know, it's, it's kind of like kids and people. If you're not, if you're not making a ruckus, no one's paying attention. So most relationships are, are give and take and, and they can be contextually dominant or submissive. So you can have a dog who's very submissive to another dog, but is going to take the bone away from the other dog because food is really important. And, and, and if there's no issue from the more dominant dog, there's not going to be an issue. If, if I don't care whether you take my bone or not, we're not going to have a fight. But if I care, there, there might be a fight. So you want to you get an idea of who does what. Um, peeing over another dog's pee, typically the one who, who pees over the other dog's pee is the more dominant one. So you get an idea of what the relationship is. And if the relationship is, is identifiable and, and the, both of the dogs are okay with it, if they're cool with that relationship, there's really nothing you need to do other than foster what that relationship is. So again, if people come in saying, you know, I want Domino to be, you know, dominant over Oreo. Well, if Oreo is dominant over the other dog, it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So we, we can't, we can't impose the relationship that we think should be either because of age, you know, the older dog should be dominant. Well, if that's not the case, that's not the case. That's, that's always surprised me. I guess it's not all that surprising, but the number of times I've had clients come in and they want their old dog who's been with them for years to be the dominant dog, not the new dog they got from the shelter. They want that dog to be the one that stays on the floor while the dog they've had for years is the one that sleeps with them on the bed. And it's just not working out. Um, no. And so it's, uh, I, 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 I just, I'm always su surprised I found it to be a fairly productive conversation when you explained to sort of pet owners about fostering the dominance hierarchy that uh, that the dogs have decided on. Right. Um, it's kind of a bitter pill, I think, for them sometimes, but they seem to get it, I think. And again, I think I think what's really important when you're when you're communicating what I found anyway, communicating with owners, because um, if the owners don't understand what I'm trying to do, then I can't do anything. And, and mm -hmm. so the vast majority of what I do, um, is educating owners and, and, and coming up with analogies, coming up with scenarios that people can relate to. So it would be kind of like saying, you know, you, you may not want your friend to date this guy, but if your friend wants to date this guy or marry this guy, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there, and that, and it's the same way with dogs. If, if they're really okay with it and no one's in danger and, and, and they really seem to enjoy whatever the relationship is, there's nothing you can do. And, and, and hierarchy is such a, you know, this whole dominance thing has been so blown out of proportion in our mm. worlds anyway, that, that any chance that a veterinarian can, can get to just talk people down off of it, really do so. Because yeah. it's, I don't think it's that big of a deal in dog world. And, and we've really made it 
um, a big problem in a lot of situations. Okay. We've we've talked a little bit about working with a dog separately to sort of try to get them to relax in the space. What what other tools are in my toolbox? Uh, let's just say that we're we're dealing with a fairly mild case, or the owner's concerned about what they see or the, as increasing signs towards aggression. Um, yep. Yeah. What 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 other what else can I reach for? What what advice would you start to work? Uh, would, okay. would you start to sort of give out? Yeah. So um, I, I think don't be afraid of medication, and then I and I think the the right medications at the right doses um, for the right amount of time can be really helpful. Um, if the case isn't that severe, I would look at things like uh, dog appeasing pheromones. Um, there's a number of anti-anxiety supplements out there, Soliquin, Purina's Calming Care. Those are kind of do no harm. Uh, the Adaptal uh, Dog Appeasing Pheromone Collar, I think I'd put on any two dogs that were having issues. It's just, and I, I would plug in a diffuser because I, I think that that can really take down the temperature of the room. Okay. The next thing I would do is not, not so much because dogs are going to fight when the owner's away. That, that typically doesn't happen. It can happen, but it typically doesn't. I would, I would make sure that the dogs are separated uh, when the owner's not home. Mm. Um, so either by baby gates or, or separate rooms so that there isn't a uh, coming together when the owner comes home, which is a time of arousal and often a time when fighting occurs. So you want to kind of be in control of when you put these dogs together. So quiet, lots of room, lots of space lots of treats. Okay. If the dogs mm -hmm. can get treats together, you want them to learn that great things happen when the other's around. Um, that, that's probably the most important thing that, that they that, learn that everything's okay. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Giving treats together. I had, I hadn't considered that. Can you unpack medication for me a little bit? Just, um, do you feel like most of us go to it too late? I always have a tendency at least to get the owners on board. I found a lot of them would like to do the they would like to do the nutritional supplements or things first and then move up to that. Should I push back harder against that? Should I get these dogs on medication early on in these behaviors? Um, I think it really depends on, on what behaviors you're seeing. Um, okay. I think the, the biggest uh, mistake that I see or, or the biggest, uh, what's, what's the word? Um, if something gets referred to me, um, it's, there's either been no medication offered, which is which can be frustrating, or it's it's been prescribed at an exorbitant dose, um, or and and or the the amount of time is has not been given enough time, or the dog's been on it for years and there's no change, and and all of those seem like madness to me. It's just like okay, if you're giving a medication, um, ideally start off low at, at a low dose so that and more so so that you don't get the side effects. Because if you get a side effect profile, if you get loss of appetite, um, more anxiety, more reactivity, noise sensitivity, all because the dose is too high, then the owner goes away thinking, okay, the medication didn't work. And the veterinarian goes away thinking, medication doesn't work. And so you need to start off low to, to get the dog acclimated to the medication and then slowly work up to a therapeutic dose. And, and you need to be in contact with them. You need to, and I think this is the frustrating thing for a lot of veterinarians, because if you're, if you're treating a, an infection, you give an antibiotic, you give it for 10 days, you're done. You're not on the phone mm -hmm. going, you know, every couple of days going, how, how are they doing? You, you have an expected outcome 
that that has been validated over the years for that for that condition. With behavior, it's it's just a different bug, and so you kind of really need to be on it. You know, how's how's Joey doing today? You know, is he taking the medication? What's what's the outcome? The the outcome of medication should be less reactivity. Um, and if they do react, a quicker recovery time. That, that's kind of why you're giving it. You're, you're giving medication so you don't have an animal going from zero to 60, or you don't have an animal that's so anxious that it can't learn anything. Mm-hmm. That it's, again, walking on eggshells and, and you're, not, you're, you're, you're dealing with an animal who's in fight or flight all the time. And so that's why you're going to be giving medications. So uh, I, I think by in answer to your question, whether you give it too soon, I, I don't. I think if you give it cautiously that way and conservatively, that you feel more comfortable giving medication earlier because you're going to see a better effect from, from medicating that way. Um, one of the biggest problems I have, and, and, I, and I saw this just in a, a, mag, uh, a recent issue of JAMA, where they do talk about separation anxiety and what to do, and not once do they mention medication. Hmm. And and I just I just want to pull my hair out because it's like do something. These dogs are in distress, and so there's two FDA approved medications for separation anxiety in dogs. Prescribe it, right? Um, at least give them some tools. And and for a lot of veterinarians, it's just the last thing on the list. And, and I get it. Some people want to do the the holistic or the more natural stuff, and and I and I talk about that. But I also say that. If that doesn't work, we've we've got a black backup plan, and 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 here are the medications that we're going to talk about and and consider. When when clients ask me how long their pet will take medications, how do you usually answer that question? I know it's highly variable, but how do you set their expectations? I typically say that if I'm going to prescribe it, and there's there, if there's an effect, mm-hmm. a positive effect, I say expect them to be on it for at least three to six months, and then oh. what I want is for them, for the client to say that they've had at least three good months of behavior, of behavior that they're looking for. So, uh, and then, um, we start to have the conversation about weaning them off and I never do weaning off during holidays when there's going to be company over. If there's some other stressful event going on, we're not going to wean the dog off at that point. And we're going to probably take a month to two months to wean the dog off of medications to see, okay, maybe it doesn't need to be on 40 milligrams of fluoxetine, but man, the sweet spot is 10 and, and I, and I can't get them off. Okay. Without a, a resurgence of, of, uh, behaviors that I don't want to see. And then maybe we'll leave them on for another three months or so and try to wean them off again. And if not, that may be medication that they need long-term, but there's, there's a conversation about it. So I would say at least three to six months, you're on medication. Okay. Um, I often, it's always hard with inner dog aggression, but, um, but just in generally one of my go-to behaviors, and I just want to check this with you, exercise is just a a big one for me. Do you find that to be a beneficial uh, part of reducing inner pet aggression? If we're separating pets and I I don't, I don't know, I guess I'm just sort of trying to to see if, if it, it didn't come up in your list of therapies. And so I just wanted to sort of Say, so do you find that something like that to be beneficial, or is that uh, something that you sort of set aside? So I think with, with dogs that are that are are having issues, I think one, if you can walk them together, I think that anything that you can do together that shows them that they can be together without fighting, I think is is good 
therapy. So if it's out in the yard running around, that's great. A lot of dogs can be together outside, can be together on a walk. And so you do want to promote those positive interactions. It's when they get inside tight spaces. And again, this kind of, especially with big dogs, I don't think we really take a look at how much space dogs take up and what their personal space is. And also looking at things from the dog's perspective, literally, like how does the room look two and a half feet off the ground, not not five or six feet off the ground. Yeah. So we see the room as, hey, no problem. You know, I can, I can get around this room fine. But if I'm on my knees, I, I can't get past this desk. I, you know, yeah. I, I don't know what's on the other side of this desk. And, that, and that's how dogs perceive it. So I think exercise is fine. It's just not, you know, there's some protocols. I mean, the, the dog whisperer is really big on, you know, exercise, exercise, exercise. You shouldn't have to be in a coma to not, <laughs> to not you know, express a behavior. Right. You know, to, and no, no, that's you should how- be drugged out to oblivion to not, to not show the behavior. So I think it's part of any treatment plan, but, um, you know, it, it's not going to be the be all and end all. No, that's super helpful. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, words of encouragement for doctors that are helping people through uh, through these types of problems? Any uh, big mistakes that you want to coach me away from uh, here in the last few moments? I, I think, Annie, like I said, I, I think that just becoming comfortable and proficient with one or two medications, fluoxetine, generic Prozac is probably the easiest one and, and the one that's going to give you the least side effects when used correctly. Uh, gabapentin is a big one out there right now, especially for cats. Trazodone is a big one out there. The, the thing about trazodone, I think understanding how it works, it, it takes about 45 to 90 minutes to work and it lasts only four to six hours. Giving it twice a day for most dogs isn't going to work. Right. Same thing for alprazolam. It lasts for about four to six hours, giving it twice a day. They don't need it at night. I think so just kind of taking that extra minute to really think about what you're trying to do, um, trying to reduce anxiety, trying to re- reduce reactivity, get them out of this fight or flight behavior pattern and, and think about the drugs that you have to use and, and use them correctly. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Terry Curtis, uh, you guys can find her online at terrycurtisveterinarybehavior.com. I'll put a link down in the show notes. Um, And thanks a lot again for being here. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Andy. And that is our episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. As I said, this is one of those uh, episodes that we do. And I'm like, I'm going to be talking about this immediately in the practice. It's just, I don't know why it seems to work that way. But I get in and I have these conversations and I learn stuff or I get a really good refresher. And then almost immediately, those uh, those behavioral problems present themselves in practice. And I go, oh, I have something new to add to the conversation that I usually do. And so I believe that's one of these episodes. I hope it's true for you. If it is and you're like, man, I'm so glad I listened to that episode. You can do me a favor. I'd really appreciate it. Uh, if you head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and write an honest review of the show, it means the world to me. It's great positive reinforcement for me. Uh, I just, I love to hear that people are listening and that this is valuable. And so that means a lot. It's also how people find the show and keep it growing and healthy. So anyway, that's just a little thing. If you're like, I'd like to do something nice for somebody today. I, I just, you know, I mean, you could do something nice for me and just, just, it's just the, the thing and it just takes a moment. But anyway, or or you could do something nice for someone else because good on you for doing something nice. All right, gang, that's enough. That's enough nonsense for today. Take care. Be well. I hope to talk with you next week.